Okay, so we're going to get started. So we're lucky enough today to have Dr. Patel here with us. So just briefly, although many of you probably know him, so Dr. Patel actually did his residency in MedPeds here at Maryland and then uh, was chief resident um, for MedPeds and then stayed on as a, a fellow in the uh, ID for um, infectious disease here at University of Maryland. He then joined the faculty here as an assistant professor, and he spent a lot of time actually running the um, ID consult service in the MICU and has more recently kind of stepped away from that role but still spent a lot of time managing critically ill, infected patients. So Dr. Patel is here today to talk to us about uh, antibiotics in the ICU. So please welcome him. All right, so I, I wasn't given anything, any instructions beyond antibiotics in the ICU, which is kind of a broad topic, but in the past, Mike McCurdy's asked me to talk about infections in the ICU, also kind of a broad topic. So we're gonna go through some cases. I thought the best way to do this would be with some cases. I put in poll everywhere, and just to sort of test it out, I'm gonna start with just this so we can get everybody logged on and, uh, I've, I've never used Poll Everywhere. We use something different for the medical students. So hopefully this is not going to be painful. Does it start, like, counting when people reply? Okay. We're going there now. All right. The answer is clearly A. We are at the University of Maryland Medical Center, so... All right, so I should be seeing something. You're almost there. Oh, there we go. All right, oh, this is gonna work, fantastic. Look at that in real time. You see the cars go up and down. Does it give you a count? Okay, so the point of this was just to see if it works, and it's working, so that's great. Bill, you need to participate, by the way. Okay. Um, it's interesting that you all pick Zosin, because for the longest time, we use more Zosin per capita than any other hospital in the country. And I think it still may be true, and that's not something to be proud of, all right? But that is, that is the truth, and they really like us, the people who make Zosin. All right, so, you know, let's just start off in thinking about infections in the ICU setting. When you think about fever, you think about leukocytosis, there's a million different reasons why people might have fever. I feel like all of you guys always jump on infections. Uh, at least that's what I see because I'm an infectious diseases doctor. But there are so many other things to think about, like drug reactions and endocrine things like thyrotoxicosis, environmental stuff like heat stroke. Um, we were one of my colleagues was just telling me he was at a kid's soccer game and, and one of the kids fell on the ground and started throwing up and all he had in his mind was the kid from uh, Maryland that died playing football a couple of years ago. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing you got to do is just cool them down as fast as possible. And so he's like, here I am, an ID doc, you know, trying to manage a, a kid with heat stroke. When you look at uh, non-infectious uh, reasons for, for pyrexia, there's a whole bunch of stuff like Blood products, as you guys all, all know, when you transfuse people, you're always worried about these kinds of reactions. Um, drug reactions, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, obviously, is the big one. But here we go with all these infections. And there's a whole bunch, right? There's, a, there's stuff that's community onset, and there's stuff that's hospital onset. And I think 
in general, when we start thinking about the ICU setting, everybody treats everything as hospital onset, even though people came from home and got admitted from the ED directly to the ICU. So it's not actually hospital onset. Many of those infections are community onset, and it changes the microbiology of what's going on. So I, I want to kind of focus on that a little bit through the talk today. Lots of reasons for leukocytosis. There's infections, there's burns, um, allergic conditions, glucocorticoids, obviously. I will tell you that um, I gave a talk here a couple of years ago, and, and nobody believed me, but I, I was like, this is the case I saw in the MICU. We had a patient in the MICU that was on antibiotics for a pulmonary abscess, and then the white count started going up, and, and everybody wanted to add mycofungin and all this other stuff. The person was already on broad-spectrum antimicrobials, and I was like, I don't know. No fever, uh, just leukocytosis, no fever, no change in respiratory status, no change in blood pressure, no, none of that, right? No productive sputum coming out of the ET tube, nothing, just the white count. I said, I'm not so sure this is a new infection. I don't think I would change the antibiotics, and there's nothing to suggest it. But they got blasted with all these antibiotics. And I said, well, let's, let's re-image the chest because the, the patient had a lung abscess. Let's just re-image the chest. And it looked the same. Actually, it was a little bit better because we've been treating the lung abscess. Uh, but in that, they caught part of the belly. They saw a distended bowel. He actually ended up having a SBO, small bowel obstruction. And once the, you know, once the small bowel obstruction resolved, the white count came down. Now, you're not going to find in a textbook that small bowel obstruction causes leukocytosis. I did find it actually in a paper after that. When I presented it here, and every single critical care attending was like, that's not it. There was something else going on. I was like, I promise you, there was nothing else going on. That was the only thing that happened. Point is, the white count goes up for a million reasons. And those of you who, who's EM trained here, right? So Dr. Matu, what does he say? Yeah, so I, I love that saying just because it's so, so sort of snarky. But Amamatu says the white count is the last refuge of the intellectually destitute. I don't quite agree with that, but the point is that I think a lot of times we just sort of hang our hat. There's a leukocytosis. I have to do something. There's an increased white count. That's bad. That's, that's something bad. I got to do something. There's a million reasons for a white count to go up and a million reasons for the white count to come back down. I, I think it's helpful in maybe making a diagnosis of infection. I don't know how much utility there is in tracking white counts from day to day either because it'll go from 16 to 14 and people are like, well, he's getting better. And the next day it's 15. Oh, he's, gotten, he's getting worse. They're, they're all the same, okay? 14, 15, 16 is all the same. So I think those are the things we got to think about with leukocytosis is, is you got to really think about the context of it. All right, so let's do a case here. So this is a, I don't know if I can move this. You can't, okay. There's a 32-year-old man with significant, uh, with no significant his past medical history, diagnosed with influenza five days ago, received Tamiflu from a primary care doc or a, you know, doc in a box, now has respiratory failure with hypotension, chest x-ray shows left lower lobe consolidation. What antibiotics should he receive? Azithromycin, levofloxacin, ceftriaxone, azithrovanc, zosin and vancomycin, or cefepime and azithromycin. You all are liars. Every last one of you is a liar. All right? Like, y'all are acting like I haven't been here before. 
Like, I've never worked in this hospital. What is this guy going to get? He's getting Vank and Zosin, and that is wrong. Danielle, you'd give him Meripenem. Right? Okay. It's not. You would have said, I don't want that. I'm going to pick something else. Okay. So, yeah, C is, so everybody knows the answer. Everybody knows the answer. And I'm telling you, I've worked in this MICU for so many years, and they all get Zosin and Vank. All right? Now, that's okay. Zosin and Vank is okay as long as we do what else? Not, not cultures. I'm talking about antibiotics. Got to cover atypicals, right? So if you're talking about somebody, what kind of pneumonia is this? What category do we put it in? Right, so this is cat, right? Everybody who's an internist had to know this, and probably most everybody else who's done critical care of any kind had to learn cap, right? So cap is very specific organisms that we see in the community, which does not include what? Pseudomonas, yet everybody wants to cover pseudomonas, okay? I promise you it's not pseudomonas, 100%. I've yet to see a cap ever that was due to pseudomonas, okay? It does not happen. So it is, what we really got to worry about is atypicals, especially when you get somebody with community-acquired pneumonia that ends up in the ICU, and we don't worry about all the atypicals. Actually, I only care about one atypical, which is Legionella. So most of the time, you probably, you know, our guidelines say everybody should be covered for Legionella that has a cap. The reality is most hospitalized people do not have Legionella, but if they're in the ICU, you got to cover Legionella. So this patient, I think, you know, if you do ceftriaxone azithromycin, bank, you've covered all the cap pathogens, plus you've covered community-acquired MRSA, which doesn't cause a lot of pneumonia, but is possible, okay? So I think that's not unreasonable. But if you do just zosin and vank, or cefepime and azithro, cefepime and azithro, you're, it's too broad. Zosin and vank, you're, it's too broad in terms of zosin, and you're not covering Legionella, okay? So those are all the reasons that that wouldn't be the right choice. I also talked to the residents about this in terms of if you gave Zosin Vank Azithro, did you do harm? Right? Because you have a patient who's septic, right? This is a patient, patient who's in respiratory failure, septic shock maybe. So what do I need to cover? I need to cover the pathogens that cause CAP. So I gave him Zosin Vank and Azithro. Did I do harm? No. So I might come in the next day and be like, that's ridiculous. I can't believe you gave them Zosin because you don't need to give them Zosin. But at least you didn't miss the pathogens that they could have. So you got the Zosin. You, I mean, you got the Strep Pneumo, you got the Morixella, and you got the Legionella. So that's, that's the way that we should be looking at this. Yes. So, yeah, so the bank is an interesting question. There's not a lot of community-acquired MRSA causing CAP, but it's it's prevalent enough that I think in the ICU setting, I would have them on vancomycin. But that's, that's something you can argue back and forth on. Uh, I think it's much more likely to have that than, than a, a pseudomonas, obviously. Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, I think I would treat anybody who's got CAP sick enough to be in the ICU, I would say give them vancomycin, okay? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. But you know, the, what's the most common organism found in uh, influenza superinfection? Strep pneumo. It's still strep pneumo. It's just that Staph aureus goes from being down here to much higher. So we always think about Staph aureus. So, so everybody knows the answer. I'm glad you guys know the answer. Oh, for, the, for those of you who just picked azithromycin, that's a problem. 
okay? We can't be doing that. We can't pick just azithromycin. So there's, a, there's an uh, incredible amount of azithromycin macrolide resistance for strep pneumo. Strep pneumo is our most common pathogen isolated for CAP, okay? So you gotta, you gotta cover um, with the beta-lactam for that. So treatment for CAP, inpatient respiratory fluoroquinolone. Uh, this is, now I will tell you, this, these recommendations are from 12 years ago. These are the most recent community-acquired pneumonia guidelines. They are actually working on them right now. This is a, these are joint guidelines, ATS and IDSA. But the, the past guidelines, respiratory fluoroquinolones were number one. A beta-lactam plus macrolide, that's what we just discussed. You want to cover strep pneumo, but also cover the atypical pathogens, in particular Legionella. And the ICU, it's the same. And if you read the guidelines, it says, unless they have risk factors for MDR organisms, and they give you risk factors for MDR organisms, which are things like they were hospitalized, which means that it's not a cap, right? So I don't understand how they came up with that. But if you've been, you know, obviously if, it's a, if this is a cancer center patient, well, that's, that's a different patient. That's a person who's um, maybe neutropenic, who's immunosuppressed. We don't treat that the same as a community-acquired pneumonia patient. So do we like fluoroquinolones? Wrong answer. Okay. So there's a, there's a big, everybody always talks about the tendons. As if, like, all these old people walk around with fluoroquinolones, what they're really worried about is their tendons, right? No, nobody's probably, has anybody ever actually seen a tendon rupture? There's always somebody. Tendon rupture from a fluoroquinolone? You had it? No, you saw one. What, did, you, did they have a tendon rupture or they just hurt? It, it ruptured, okay. So that's the one we always talk about is the tendon rupture, but that's not the reason we care anymore. There's a million reasons for, for fluoroquinolones not to be used. So if you go back to 2008, there's a risk for tendonitis and tendon rupture. 2011, we're talking about worsening of myasthenia gravis, which affects very few people. Um, 2013, irreversible peripheral neuropathy. 2016, we're talking about other um, uh, disabling and potentially permanent side effects with tendons, muscles, joints, nerves, central nervous system. And then 2018 mental health side effects and serious uh, blood sugar disturbances. We see hypoglycemia. We see hyperglycemia. Uh, especially in older people, you will see altered mental status, delirium. So lots of reasons not to use fluoroquinolones. And what's the newest one? I see some pharmacists. It increases your risk for aortopathies. That's, I, that's, I didn't know that was a word, but that's apparently a word. So increases your risk for aortopathies. So, um, we are, we are saying probably we shouldn't, using, we shouldn't be using fluoroquinolones. I think the new pneumonia guidelines, fluoroquinolones will no longer be the preferred regimen. It'll be a beta-lactam plus macrolide, beta-lactam plus doxycycline, okay? So try to avoid these. But, you know, in the ICU setting, we'll use fluoroquinolones because there may be infections that we don't have other uh, antibiotic choices for that are, e you know, that are as easy to use as fluoroquinolones. So oftentimes we'll use it in that setting. All right, this, is a, this was a, a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015 where they looked at what causes community-acquired pneumonia uh, in the United States, and they looked at a ton of different centers, and what they found is most of the time we never know. And for all of you that have bronched patients and then had everything come back negative, this is consistent with what's seen in the literature. No pathogen detected. And 22%, it was viral pathogen only, and that pathogen tends to be rhinovirus. Rhinovirus does not cause pneumonia. 
okay? It does not cause pneumonia. Pathologically, it does not cause pneumonia. So what's happening there? It's rhinovirus is allowing um, access to the lower respiratory tract, okay? So the fact that you have an upper respiratory tract infection decreases your ability to clear pathogens from the, uh, um, from the upper respiratory tract. They get into the lower respiratory tract, and those are the ones that give you the actual infection. So you all have heard this. You know, I had a cold, and then I got worse, okay? So that's, that's what's happening there. So, again, if you look at this list, there's no pseudomonas. There's no pseudomonas on this. There is a study I looked at that showed the prevalence of pseudomonas, community-acquired pneumonia, is the same as PCP. All right? And I don't think all of you are giving everybody bathroom when they roll through the door, right? But yet we really feel strongly about giving everybody anti-pseudomonal coverage. Now, this... There's, there's a little bit of mismatch there because the surviving sepsis stuff is always like, make sure you have an anti-pseudomonal, right? But I think you have to put it in the right context. Does this have a patient have a community acquired? Would, if you had somebody with meningitis, would you give them zosin? The answer should be no. It should be a resounding no, okay? Because it's not the right org, it's not the right antibiotic for what you're trying to treat, and it doesn't get into the CNS, okay? So maybe cefepime, but again, you should not be treating meningitis with cefepime. We do not have raging pseudomonas meningitis walking through this hospital, unless you're in the neurosurgical ICU. So uh, these are just estimated uh, pathogens prevalence based on age. And again, the, you know, human rhinovirus, but influenza is really a big one. And as we enter flu season, you'll see a lot more of it. I think everybody who gets admitted in, in flu season for a respiratory problem should be evaluated for influenza. We can debate the merits of giving people um, Tamiflu. It's really not a good drug, but we probably should give it because it's the only real agent we have for treating influenza. I don't know if it does a whole heck of a lot, but we should still at least be looking for it. All right, so next case. 29-year-old man. This is probably something very common for both our MICU and our um, CTICU. 29-year-old man is admitted to the ICU for septic shock due to endocarditis and started on vancomycin. He's noted to have large vegetation on his mitral valve. Four out of four blood cultures are positive for MRSA. MICs are in susceptible range for VANC, DAPTO, ceftariline, and linazolid. He has blood cultures that are all negative, and vancomycin levels have been cons uh, con consistently therapeutic. On day five admission, the patient continues to have daily fever and require vasopressors. So uh, MRSA endocarditis, on treatment, still having fever. What do we want to do here? What's the next step in the management of this patient? So we can add cefepime to the vancomycin, add gent and continue vanc, continue vanc alone, switch vancomycin to daptomycin, and then switch vancomycin to linazolid. All right, I'm going to see what we do. All right, most of you picked C, which is continue vancomycin alone, and that is the correct answer, okay? So fever is not a reason to switch antibiotics. Fever happens when people have infections, as does, as does leukocytosis. In fact, in, in endocarditis, you can have fever up to 10 days on appropriate antimicrobial therapy. When you look at something like pyelonephritis, people can have fever for a week on appropriate antimicrobial therapy. And actually, the new guidelines suggest that you should only be treating pyelonephritis for a week, which means they could still be febrile when you stop the antibiotics, okay? 
So this is not, we, we have the data here. We know what they have. They have MRSA endocarditis. There's no reason to go searching for something else unless there's a change in their status, right? So if they were having hypotension. Now, I wouldn't argue if you want to do repeat blood cultures every day, but we were doing that, okay? And all we found is MRSA on the initial cultures. The MICs are fine, so there's no real reason to switch from vancomycin to daptomycin. And then we really don't want to use linazolid for endocarditis because it's not a cytal drug. It's a static drug. Now, I, I can't tell you that we have great data for cytal versus static. We have some data. Theoretical, um, you know, when, when you look at it theoretically, you always want a cytal drug for serious infections, and endocarditis obviously qualifies for that. So I would not add cefepime, uh, although this is always sort of the, the reflex uh, uh, reaction in, in the ICUs is, well, they're still febrile, I gotta do something else, okay? You have the organism, you have the pathogen, you know the disease process, you have a, uh, an antibiotic that works. So just keep doing it. And we see this over and over, these people will defervesce eventually, and we don't change the antibiotics on them, okay? So, this is, this is apparently what the residents take away when I talk to them, because they always say, well, you said antibiotics are not antipyretics. If you want them to have, stop having fever, give them Tylenol. Is that right, Dr. Shaw, Tylenol or Motrin? Not a good one. Don't they use, don't you guys use IV Tylenol in the SICU? I mean, yeah. What's it? Yeah. I didn't know it existed until somebody told me they use it in the SICU. No? All right. Okay, so Motrin, you're saying. That's right, because of the, the GI bleed. Cooling blankets. There you go, cooling blankets. All right. So this is the next case. A 32-year-old woman presents to the ED with fevers, rigors, and left flank pain. She has started on vancomycin, piptazo for presumed septus, sepsis, Subsequently transferred to the ICU due to hypotension, refractory to fluid resuscitation. CT of the abdomen is significant for perinephrine stranding. Blood urine cultures grow E. coli, susceptible to piptazo, nitrofrantoin, gentamicin, ceftriaxone, cefepime, imipedum. Improved on current antibiotics and is now off pressors. So maybe pyelonephritis on, uh, was on zosin and vank, got better. What do we do next? Should we continue the zosin and vank? Discontinue the vank and continue zosin. Discontinue vank, switch zosin to ceftriaxone. Discontinue vank, switch zosin to gentamicin. Discontinue vank, switch zosin to nitrofurantoin. What do you mean? Oh, I didn't even, you know, I, I've like violated the first rule of uh, questions, which is it's supposed to be um, alphabetical, so it can switch up, switch up from question to question. All right, so most of you got it right. So you want to switch this person to ceftriaxone. Now, I, we we do have issues with ceftriaxone, mainly being, what's the big issue with ceftriaxone use? No, what's what's the, somebody said it. C. diff, right? Like that should be automatic. Anytime you think ceftriaxone, you should think C. diff. Okay, so that's our, our hospital's big push is not to use ceftriaxone if we don't have to because of the risk for C. diff. Um, I'm surprised that people didn't pick gentamicin because um, our ID docs in shock trauma like to use a lot of aminoglycosides for UTIs, and that's a, that's a reasonable option. What's the issue with 
uh, aminoglycosides or nitrofurantoin in this case. This is a lady with pyelonephritis, right? So it's parenchymal disease. So you, you don't want to use macrobid. You don't want to use an aminoglycoside in that situation. But the big point here is that you need to, you need to narrow the coverage. We don't need to continue the zosin now that we know what the organism is. And there is now data out there that even one extra day of antimicrobial therapy that's unnecessary can result in resistance, okay? So the, you know, I used to always say it's only a day, you know, let's just stop harping. I, look, nobody, I, sh I was going to say nobody in ID likes to be a steward. That's not true. There are people that love it. That's not why I went into infectious diseases. I don't, I don't like, you know, have a ton of joy in going and telling people to stop antibiotics or switch antibiotics. It is part of what we do as infectious diseases doctors. But I think we have to do it because otherwise other people won't. So we don't want to tell you to stop using Zosin, but, but if you don't, we're going to get more resistance, okay? So once you have your organism identified and susceptibilities, we really should narrow to something that's, a, um, a, you know, a narrow coverage for, for this kind of infection. So why do we care? Increasing resistance globally. We have a lot more carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteraceae. Are you guys seeing that in the ICUs? Right? You're seeing more CREs. At minimum, you're probably seeing more ESBLs. Okay? You're certainly seeing that. You're probably seeing some CREs. There are limited drug options, increased mortality, increased health care costs. I stole this slide from my uh, colleague, Carrie Tom. What drives the emergence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria? Don't forget to take a handful of complementary antibiotics on your way out. Right? So this is unfortunately the way that we've approached use of antibiotics for a long time. And, and then we also think that, you know, I, I love this. Anytime I'm on service, there's like the curtain, right? You pull the curtain, and all, all of a sudden it's HIPAA compliant. You can discuss anything in there, and the other person won't hear it. And you can protect them from pathogens that can cross the curtain. Um, so this is part of the problem. We should be having single rooms everywhere in the hospital, honestly, right? There's no reason for us to have patients doubled up. Risk factors, antimicrobial exposure, fluoroquinolones, carbapenems, beta-lactam, and uh, beta-lactamase inhibitors increase the risk of resistant organisms. Uh, infection control lapses. I, I, I remember when I was a fellow here, um, the old SICU, which was on Fort Gadelsky, had a really bad problem with Acinetobacter. Uh, I don't, Dr. Chanholtz, you remember that when they had the Acinetobacter stuff? We actually had to have the CDC come in, the Epidemiological Intelligence Service, EIS, came to Maryland to look at our SICU because we had a problem with Acinetobacter. So I was the fellow, a first-year fellow, sitting in the, in the SICU one day, and I watched an entire surgical team walk into a room that had all the flags all around it, right, like yellow signs and, you know, wear a gown, and everybody just walked into the room without a gown on, and, and a couple people started pulling off bandages and stuff. Nobody washed their hands. So I said to the SICU um, chief at the time, I said, I think this is what's, you know, causing your Acinetobacter in this. And he said, I don't believe in that. So that's a problem, right? I, it, the germ theory is not a theory. It's a thing. It's a real thing. So I think we got to be aware that when we, when we don't wash our hands, that can lead to a real problem. And so that, and that was, by the way, that was EIS's conclusion. People need to wash their hands. Right? We had to have the CDC come tell us we need people to wash their hands. Um, so infection control lapses are a big one. ICU exposure, prolonged hospital stay, mechanical ventilation. So basically being in an ICU is not good for you, okay, which we all know. Um, overuse of antibiotics. The big thing is it leads to resistance, but side effects include drug reactions like Stevens-Johnson, hepatotoxicity, nephrotoxicity, C. diff. 
So we have a real problem in this hospital with C. diff. We're worse than most of the hospitals in the area when it comes to C. diff uh, um, rates. So this has been a big push from the hospital infection control standpoint, uh, trying to take care of that. All right. So this is a 32-year-old man who was hospitalized after being struck by a car. On day four of admission, he develops a fever. He subsequently has decreased urine output, tachycardia, and hypotension due to presumed sepsis. What's antibiotic? What antibiotics should be started? Your options are ceftriaxone, azithro, cefepime, and vanc, vancomycin by itself, zosin by itself, or zosin plus vancomycin. Not yet. And it shouldn't matter. Correct. I, I will argue that it doesn't matter because I never see that factored into the equation when people choose antibiotics. All right. All right. So both of those options are very good. What organism? So what? This is sepsis in somebody where? In the hospital. So what are the organisms we worry about? Pseudomonas and. Yeah, so we don't actually just worry about pseudomonas. We also worry about E. coli and Klebsiella and all those other things. But if we cover pseudomonas, we'll cover all those other gram-negative rods. Okay? So we want to make sure that... So now this is the patient that needs zosin. This is the patient that needs cefepime. This is the patient that needs pseudomonal coverage. So when we look at... This is from the um, National Healthcare Safety Network that does these surveys periodically. This is from 2011 to 2014. You'll see the most common pathogens when you look at, uh, in terms of uh, central line bloodstream, uh, CLABSI, central line bloodstream associated bloodstream infections. Number one is coagulative staph, but you see that uh, staph aureus is number two. Number three is E. fecalis. When you look at caudies, number one is E. coli, followed by uh, pseudomonas. When you look at VAPs, number one is staph aureus, followed by pseudomonas. So these are the pathogens that we worry about in the, in the hospital setting. So this, this is where you need to make sure that you have pseudomonal coverage and that you have MRSA coverage. Once you find out that it's not one of those organisms, you can always narrow your co coverage, but you ought to start with this, okay? So these patients have to get uh, pseudomonal coverage and MRSA coverage. So when we say, what about the septic patient? You know, you want to start broad and then narrow. I, I'm not the person that says you don't you shouldn't give this antibiotic up front because when you are seeing these patients, when they first roll in, they are sick. They are sick. That is not the time to be sort of, you know, well, I think you should use this. or that. I, you know, I think it's got to be reasonable, though. I think you got to, as, as Bobby was actually asking me, what else do I know about this patient? If the patient has symptoms that are GI in origin, then maybe I need to make sure I cover anaerobes. But if they're respiratory in origin, I probably don't unless they aspirated. Okay? So I think we should be thinking about what is the possible syndrome and then make the, the um, you know, choose the antibiotics accordingly. And then also really trying to figure out, is this a community infection or is this a hospital-acquired infection? If this is a community-acquired infection, as I said, we're going on a different uh, list of organisms than when we're talking about with hospital-acquired infections. So choose antibiotics makes sense for the suspected source. And I think it's helpful to always think about what's my treatment course, Okay. Before I started the MICU ID consult service in 2009, there were patients in our MICU that were on four, five weeks of antimicrobial therapy for VAP, okay? Because every time an attending switched, they're like, well, they're not better. Let's give them another week. And then they switched again. 
So it wasn't. It was because you know there's there's changes in 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 continuity, and that and I didn't see this patient when they first came in, and they're not better. So now around that time, we also came out with data that shows that you know five uh, seven days of antimicrobial therapy for VAP is just as good as 15, and it sort of changed the culture how we did things. But you know, as ID docs, this is all we think about is how long are we treating. Because you guys are thinking about a hundred other things that I don't care about, right? So it's it's a difference in priorities. So if you look at our I, ICU, uh, this is our ICU antibiogram from a couple years ago. Um, if you look at Pseudomonas, and I saw a lot of you picked cefepime. If you pick, if you look in our hospital, the best drug for anti-pseudomonal activity is is actually cefepime. It's better than zosin. It's better than our carbapenems. Okay, based on our local antibiogram. You go to Hopkins, you may see something different. You go to St. Agnes, you might see something different. But in our hospital, cefepime is our best drug for, for um, pseudomonas uh, activity. Amicacin's great. Uh, anybody want to add amicacin? No? Are you going to say something? Aminoglycan, do you guys use amicacin at all? Not really? You know, so <laughs> the I think the... Um, ID pharmacist built a sepsis protocol uh, part that includes amicacin. Anybody ever use that for the order set, the sepsis order set? No? No? So there's a sepsis order set. Um, and in that sepsis order set, it gives you the option of adding amicacin. So if you have somebody that is critically ill and, and is at high risk for hospital-acquired infection, you should probably click off the amicacin box. Okay? Why? So that's double coverage for resistant gram-negative rods. There is really no, you look at amicacin across this thing here, if you look all the way down, 96, 100, 100, 99, 99, 100, 98, there's very little resistance to amicacin. Problem with amicacin and all aminoglycosides is you develop resistance very quickly, especially when used by itself, okay? So it's not the drug of choice, but while you're trying to sort things out, while you're, when this patient is crashing in front of you, if you don't know you know, what's going on, what organism's causing the infection, and they've been in the hospital, it's a good shot. It could be a CRE, in which case amicacin would be a good drug to add on. Okay? So I, if nothing else, I hope you all take that away from this, that amicacin is something that we should be thinking about in these critically ill patients. Yeah. 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 With renal? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that, I, I wasn't going to go into that, but I think that's a great point. There is a fair amount of evidence now to suggest that the combination of ankylosing is not good for your kidneys. And so I think a lot of, are you guys using more cefepime than, than zosin, or is it still zosin? More cefepime, yeah. I think it's, I think that's a reasonable choice, especially when we look at our antibiogram and you're worried about pseudomonas, you got a better pseudomonal agent with cefepime than you do with, with zosin. So I think that's not a bad choice. Yep. Other questions? All right. So this is an 82. The, by the way, all of these cases are real. They're all patients that I've seen somewhere in this hospital. This is an 82-year-old woman is admitted to the hospital with diagnosis of CHF. A UA on admission reveals 10 white cells per high-power field. E. coli is cultured from the urine, uh, which is sent for the investigate the etiology of the pyuria. The isolate is resistant to ampicillin and sensitive to uh, augmentin, cefazolin, bactrim, and ciprofloxacin. What is the next step in the management of this patient? 
Aceftriaxone, B. ciprofloxacin, uh, C. No treatment, D. Meropenem, or E. Zosin. She has no symptoms. She has no symptoms. I think I'm being too obvious with my questions. Really? Nobody's picking something else? Okay. All right. So that's good. That's the answer. So this was actually a patient I saw in the CCU when I was a fellow. And they were started on ceftriaxone for, they came in for heart failure. They came in for heart failure and they were started on ceftriaxone. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know if you want to have that choice after I tell you what happens to this poor lady. Um, so she had, uh, she was started on ceftriaxone. Guess what happened to her? She got C. diff. And she got a um, partial colectomy, and then she died. Okay? So she came in for heart failure, and she had no, GI, no GU symptoms, no urinary symptoms whatsoever. And so that's, that's a nosocomial death, right? That's an iatrogenic death. That's something we did to her. Um, again, you guys don't see all that. I mean, I see, I see the horror stories because I, I'm seeing these patients. You're going to give 1,000 people ceftriaxone and not have that outcome, right? But we shouldn't really have any of those outcomes at all. So if we can, it's preventable. This is a preventable death. So um, good. Everybody got asymptomatic bacteriuria we don't treat. You know, the other question that comes up is UTIs in the ICU. I, I'm not a big believer of UTIs as a cause of fever in the ICU or sepsis, unless we're talking about upper tract disease. Cystitis, simple cystitis, really doesn't usually make people that sick. There's literally millions of women walking around the world with cystitis that are not in the ICU, Okay. They don't even have a fever, okay? They have dysuria. That's what cystitis is. So there's a big push in antimicrobial stewardship to say, why are we getting UAs and urine cultures? Because cystitis is really not the thing that's getting people sick. And I think the reason I, I worry about it is we find something abnormal in the UA and we stop looking for something else. That's my real concern. We stop looking for the real source of fever, a different infection that we should be treating, okay? So something to keep in mind. I, I mean, yes, urosepsis, we're not, we're not supposed to use that term. There is sepsis of urinary origin. It exists. I 100% agree. We see it a lot in older patients especially. But I think it's an easy one to cop out with, right? Like, this is a UTI. That's what I'm treating. And then we don't find out what's going on. Yep. No, 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 no. So, so the only people that you would do something, if, if she's had instrumentation recently... That's different, yeah. So we, we had a patient not so long ago on MedID who had a prostate biopsy and had a positive urine culture at the time of the prostate biopsy. That is supposed to be the person that gets antibiotics, right? That's the asymptomatic bacteria that you treat. He didn't, and then he came back six weeks, six weeks later, and he had an epidural abscess with E. coli. Same E. coli that was found in his urine, okay? Same resistance pattern. So that's the reason why we do want to treat those patients. But if, if in the absence of that, we wouldn't just treat her. She's 82 as well. She's much higher risk for things like C. diff and adverse outcomes from uh, antibiotic use. Okay. 35-year-old woman admitted to psychiatry for depression. Routine lab sent, including UA and urine culture on admission due to fever. The patient denies dysuria or other urinary symptoms. Urine culture two days later is reported as 100,000 CFU of Staph aureus. Next step in the management of this patient, A, no treatment necessary. B, start on linazolid. Uh, C, obtain blood cultures. D, insert Foley catheter and start vancomycin.
urine. How did that happen? Somebody changed their answer? Makes it go away? I thought you were like locked in. You're not locked in. All right, so again, this is a, this is a real patient, um, and, and this was not in the ICU setting, but we run into the same sort of scenario in the ICU. So as Bobby said, all my answers are C. Um, this, is, this is a lady who had endocarditis. So I, I bring this one up because I think you've got to think about what pathogens should be in this place, okay? So every time I see a bronch that has candida in it, I ignore it. Okay, and if somebody asks me about it, I ignore it twice, okay? I don't care about candida in a bronch specimen. I also don't care about, care about diphtheroids in a bronch specimen. Those are not pulmonary pathogens, okay? So they, we just don't care. Candida in the urine, also 90% of the time I don't care, okay? Uh, most of the times I don't care. Staph in the urine doesn't belong in the urine. Now, if she had a Foley catheter in, yeah, okay, I could buy maybe she has staph in the urine because she has a Foley catheter. Otherwise, that is not a urinary pathogen. That is not a urinary colonizer. That's not a, a bladder colonizer. So if you see Staph aureus in the urine, you really need to go look for other sources of Staph aureus, such as in the blood. Okay. Now, does that mean everybody who's got Staph aureus in the urine has endocarditis? No, but it's like 15 to 20%. Okay. So if you see it in the urine, you should start looking for where did it come from. This lady actually had endocarditis. And... and um, she was, you know, obviously transferred from, from psychiatry to medicine for, for therapy for endocarditis. Why do we care about staff so much? Uh, I, many of you, if you've done residency here or were students here, you'll know I've shown these pictures over and over. This was a woman I saw in the ED a few years ago. Came in with chest pain. I didn't see her at this point. She was seen in the emergency department, had chest pain. Uh, she actually had a um, CT scan looking for uh, PE. She's like 24, young woman. Not on oral contraceptives, but you know she had chest pain and it wasn't explained. The X-ray was clear. The CT scan is clear. I don't I don't have the um, image, but it was completely clear. She comes back five days later, and that's what her X-ray looked like. Five days, okay? Comes back five days later, and this is what her X-ray looked like. This is what her CT scan looked like, okay? So this was MSSA. This is Staph aureus, and it's five days. She went from a clear CT to this in five days. Lots of abscesses all throughout the lungs, even into the soft tissue of the back, all right? This is a, a gentleman that I, you can see, 44-year-old guy, had had a uh, fusion of his spine, and um, uh, there's bone missing here, right? So this was an abscess, th this, this is an abscess. So I asked the medical students what organ that is. <laughs> They're like, I don't know, yeah, it's, it's the pus ball. Um, so when orthopedics went in to evacuate this, they said it was the size of a basketball. Okay? So that, again, that was MSSA. That's, don't care so much about MSSA versus MRSA. Okay? Staph aureus is bad either way. Is that what you wanted to say? You, you did the heart thing? I don't know what that was. I didn't expect you to do the heart. I, I would imagine so, right? And I bet he was very satisfied too. Um, yeah, I always I, I tell residents there's nothing more satisfying than doing an IND, right? You go in, pus comes out, and everything's better, and everybody's grossed out. I, I think it's fantastic. So MS, this was MSSA. MSSA, MRSA doesn't matter. The only only reason we care about which one it is is what treatment options we have. Okay, the virulence of the organisms is not that different. There is community acquired MRSA. It's a little bit different, but in general, it doesn't really matter. Okay. This was actually somebody I saw in, in Malawi um, who, he's a young guy, he's 18, 
came in saying his leg hurt. Um, I kind of suspected what, does anybody know what this, this is? Somebody said it. Who said it? Myositis. There's a, there's a thing that goes right in front of it. Pyo. Right. That's the pus. This is pyomyositis. Okay. So when he first came in, I stuck a needle in his leg and nothing came out because the first part of pyomyositis is a, like a woody induration of the muscle. And so I sent him out on oral antibiotics because he, he, he said to me, I have to take my exams tomorrow. Okay. All right. Our medical students get a hangnail and they don't show up for school. Okay. Yeah. I know you're rolling an eye. Don't lie. You know it's true. Okay. So, um, and, and so, but yeah, he said he had to take his exam. So he went and t- took his exams. This was 45 minutes away from where we were. He came back five days later and this is what his thigh looked like. Okay. So this, again, I don't know if his MRSA or MSSA. It was about a liter and a half of pus that came out of his leg. And it was gram-positive coccyne clusters. So it's staph aureus. I don't know if it was MRSA or MSSA. So staph is bad, okay? But you guys all know that. What's that? So pyomyositis uh, doesn't require, it's, it's not clear. There's often a, a history of trauma to the muscle, but not always. So the idea there is that maybe there, when you have trauma to the muscle, uh, there's some uh, uh, bruising that occurs there or something that set, allows the bacteria to set up shop. There's some disruption in the uh, vasculature that allows the bacteria to get into the, the soft tissue space, and then they start you know, doing what Staph aureus does. But that would require there to be some sort of a hematogenous spread. And, and so maybe that's, you know, we brush our teeth, we get bacteremic, but we don't usually get bacteremic with Staph when we brush our teeth, right? It's the stuff that's in the oral flora. So it's not clear. Uh, seen mostly in young men and seen in big skeletal muscles. So thighs, shoulders, typically is where you see trop- tropical pyomyositis. The pyomyositis we see in the United States is usually in diabetics or cancer patients. Okay, HIV and HIV. All right. So a uh, 54-year-old woman on HD admitted for fever, hypotension, tachycardia, and dialysis. She started on Zosin and Vank for suspected line infection. All great. We expect those, right? Pseudomonas, staph aureus, when we're talking about line infections. Blood cultures from an admission group, MRSA, the line is removed. Decision is made to treat with six weeks of VANC through a new HD catheter. Two weeks into the hospital course, she spikes fever again, and the blood culture grows yeast. All right, so what do we do in this patient? Remove the line and start amphotericin B. Remove the line and start fluconazole. Remove the line and start mycofungin. Keep line in and start mycofungin. No treatment necessary. It is always C. I know. Shaw's looking at me like, <laughs> we do the same thing on the med student exams. It's all C, all the way down. No, it's not true. It's not true. All right. Okay. Well, I gave it away already. I said it was C. So, yeah, this... Remove the line is, is number one. That's key. You want to remove the line because most of these infections are due to a... A, um, a, a bloodstream source such as a catheter. If, if this patient didn't have a catheter, obviously it would be a different story. If your patient had had abdominal surgery, that's a different situation, okay? But in this situation, he's got a line. That would be the, the source for the, for, the bec, uh, for the fungi. Ampho versus mica versus fluconazole. Any reason why we pick amp, uh, mycofungin? Anybody? Thoughts? Okay. Let's say we didn't have Canada Oris. 
There, okay, so so amphotericin's always going to work. Okay, almost always for candidemia, amphotericin's always almost always going to work, but it's got a lot of toxicities. Okay, so we don't want to use amphotericin if we don't have to. Fluconazole used to be our drug of choice, except we have increasing fluconazole resistance. There's very little resistance to echinocandins, including Canada Oris is susceptible to echinocandins uh, in most situations. So the guidelines actually now state that everybody should be started on an echinocandin if you suspect a fungemia. Now, why do we care? It's never a contaminant, right? Fungi I've had questions about this. We've had, um, we've had residents in the MICU take a phone call overnight from the micro lab. You know, there's yeast in the blood, and they're like, okay. And then they wait till morning rounds to discuss what to do about it. Okay, that's not good. Uh, but I think it's because they're like, well, I don't know. That seems like it's probably not a real thing. It's always a real thing. Um, the reason is that the mortality for fungemia is about 45% without treatment, okay? So you have to treat these every single time. Risk factors are broad-spectrum antibiotics, catheters, abdominal surgery, immunosuppression, colonization. So when you see patients that have candida in their urine, candida in their uh, BAL, candida from uh, a rectal culture, whatever, you know, like when they do the surveillance cultures, those people are highly colonized with candida. They're much more likely to have candida sepsis. Okay, so you want to think about that. Candida albicans, mostly sensitive to fluconazole, but we always start with mycofungin. Others may be resistant, so always use mycofungin for these patients. Um, just to throw a little plug in for infectious diseases, now there are multiple studies that have shown outcomes are better, especially with staph aureus infections, when you have an ID consultation. This literally was just published last week, um, uh, and this group looked at um, ID consultation and mortality of patients with candida bloodstream infections, and this is the, the survival curve on the right. And you can see there's a big difference between those who were seen by ID and those who weren't. And lest you think that we always say shorter antibiotic courses is better, you'll see those who got ID consults actually got longer courses because they probably identified a more complex infection, such as endocarditis, that you know maybe was not otherwise, otherwise would not have been found. Central line removal was much higher if you had an ID consult. Echocardiography. You know, we can argue about whether or not that's necessary with candidate infections, but in this study they show they did more echoes in those patients. Ophthalmic examination, ophthalmological examination. Do you guys do that? You have opt Yeah, I know. I, I'm not asking if you do it, Bobby. Um, yeah. I, I, I think I want an ophthalmologist to do it. What, what are we looking for? What are we looking for? Anybody know? Candida and ophthalmitis. So you'll get pushback from ophthalmology that says they don't, if they don't have symptoms, then I don't need to check their eyes. Well, most of our patients in the ICU are intubated or on you know, pressors or um, uh, sedated or whatever. So well, that's not a really good one. Plus, the, the amount of effort it takes to do an ophthalmological exam is actually fairly minimal uh, versus the potential blindness or, or, or loss of sight that occurs with uh, candida endophthalmitis. And how does that change your treatment? They would actually get antifungals into the, into the eye, okay, which I don't do, right? So you need an ophthalmologist to do that. So it's actually in the recommendations for anybody who's got candida bloodstream infections that they should have an ophthalmological exam. Okay. So uh, I wanted to close off with a couple of things here. I wanted to talk about some of the new drugs that are out there for treatment of MDR gram-negative rods. CREs, we use this term all the, all the time, carbapenem-resistant Enterobacter aceae. Enterobacter aceae are E. coli, Klebsiella, Enterobacter. Um, they, are all, they are resistant to all the carbapenems um, and resistant to, obviously, the first and second and third generation cephalosporins. So these are real problematic, okay? So before 2016, 
we used to see a lot of CREs, and we would do a lot of different funky things to try to treat these patients. We'd give them tigacycline plus polymixin. We'd give them tigacycline plus carbapenem, but you just said it's resistant to carbapenem. When you combine carbapenem with some of these other antibiotics, it allows access of the carbapenem to the site of action, okay? So there is a theoretical benefit to adding drugs to the carbapenem. Aminoglycosides. Again, I told you, aminoglycosides are not a great drug by themselves, high risk of resistance, and so... You know, these were none of these were really good options, and the mortality was really high with these patients, and it still is. But now we have some new drugs that we use. Have you used Avacaz, Ciftazidine? I, you know, it's unfortunate that many of you have because we'd prefer not to. If you use Ciftazidine, AB Bactam, it actually has activity against um, some of these uh, carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteraceae. But really, just the ones that are there's many mechanisms of CREs. This works for the one called. KPC, Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemase, which is the most common CRE that we see in this hospital. Okay? So for that, we can use ceftazidine AV-Bactam. We still often use it in conjunction with another drug. I don't believe you all are able to order this on your own, right? I think it requires still an ID physician or fellow to sign off on it. Uh, have you heard of this? Babamir? Anybody used Babamir yet? No? Okay, so it's not formulary, but we can use it. We have used it in this hospital. It was approved two years ago. It's a combination of meropenem with Vaberbactam, which is a new beta-lactamase inhibitor. Also has activity against um, CREs, but does not cover acinetobacter and multidrug-resistant pseudomonas. Okay, this is sort of our newest one that we've had with high activity against carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae. I used a lot of tigacycline back in the day because we had a lot of people with multidrug-resistant acinetobacter or carbapenem-resistant enterobacteraceae, which we didn't have good options for. Ticocycline's got a lot of limitations. It was used a lot in the surgical patients because it was actually marketed for surgical disease. Uh, it doesn't get very good blood levels. It's got a large volume of distribution. You give somebody ticocycline, it goes out into the tissues. Fantastic for surgical disease, right? Not so great for bacter uh, bacteremias or sepsis. So aravacycline is a little bit better. Has anybody used aravacycline? No? So we have aravacycline now as well for patients who have uh, either ESBLs, uh, multidrug-resistant adacinetobacter, or CREs. Does not work against Providencia, Pseudomonas, or Proteus, the three Ps. Okay? So if you have one of those organisms, this won't work. Zerbaxa, who's used that? Yeah? Okay, so Zerbaxa is got great activity against pseudomonas, including a lot of MDR strains. No activity against um, carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteraceae, okay? So this is really just for ESBLs and multidrug-resistant pseudomonas. We have been using this. We are seeing resistance in patients who have been on it a long time, okay? All right, this is my last slide. I think there's this guy, uh, Brad Spellberg in California, who's been a real proponent of this. He wrote a paper about not using constantine units of duration of antimicrobial therapy. So traditionally, how do we decide how long we're going to treat somebody with antibiotics? It was a wave of the hand, days in the week, uh, multiples of five, whatever made you happy, okay? But there's no real studies to dictate how long we should be treating people with antimicrobials. So he put together this slide that he's, you know, he puts on Twitter all the time and every conference he goes to, he talks about this. But these are all the studies we now have that look at durations of antimicrobial therapy and outcomes. So when you look at community-acquired pneumonia, 
three days or five days is no different than seven, eight, or ten days. Okay? Now he says shorter equals better, and you may say, well, it says not equal. We say it's better in terms of antimicrobial stewardship. Okay? Outcomes may be equal, but stewardship outcomes are better. HAP, seven days versus 10 to 15 equal. VAP, eight days versus 15 days, which we extrapolate to seven versus 14. Um, pyelonephritis, seven days. All right, we always taught 14 days, but it's seven days, no difference in outcomes. Intra-abdominal infections, four versus 10 days. Gram-negative bacteremia, seven. Now, this is not the person with gram-negative bacteremia that's in the ICU and still on pressors on day seven, okay? That person may need a longer course of antimicrobials, but if they're doing fine, you know, we see this a lot. We have somebody comes in with a UTI, pyelonephritis, or something like that, and they get bacteremic, and on day three, they're ready to leave the hospital. We don't need to put a pick line in those people, okay? We can send them out on oral antimicrobials to finish out a seven-day course. Um, cellulitis, five versus 10, and then you see so on and so forth, okay? So we have a lot of data for this. Um, when we look at this, and I, and, I, and I say we have data to go shorter. When you look at the study from the New Journal of Medicine for intra-abdominal infections, this is with source control. These are people who have source control. Look at the outcomes. 22% in both arms still have poor outcomes, all right? So I'm not telling you that we go shorter and everybody does better. It's just they, d they do just as poorly on both arms, okay? I mean, really, intra-abdominal infections are really bad, all right? So in increasing the, the duration of antibiotics doesn't change this outcome. That's the point, all right? So if you have the option, you always want to go shorter with your antimicrobial therapy, even in the ICU setting, especially if they're getting be better very quickly, you can send them out. All right, any questions? Yes. That's a great question. It's a loaded question, but it's a great question. So there are, there's increasing evidence out there. There's a, a study um, on endocarditis treatment where they show that treating endocarditis with oral regimens is non-inferior to IV regimen. Now, that's not our patient population, okay? That's, that's like if, you know, Dr. Shah had endocarditis, I know he'll take his PO antibiotics every day, okay? That's not who we typically see in our hospital. We, a lot of... Okay, Bobby, fine, you. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, you need to have somebody who's a responsible person when it comes to taking the therapy. Same thing with osteomyelitis. There's da data out there that osteomyelitis treatment can be treated, it can be done with oral antimicrobials. You just have to pick antibiotics that have good bioavailability, the number one of which is fluoroquinolones, which we don't want to use, okay? So, but there's things like linazolid that we use quite out often, um, but... In the, in the ICU setting, I would not do oral. Yeah, I would not do oral. But as you, as you transition them to, to outpatient therapy, it, it can be oral for a lot of these things, including bacteremia. You can treat bacteremias outpatient with oral antimicrobials as long as they have good bioavailability. Yep. Other questions? No? All right. Thank you very much.